and welcome to, ta-da, episode 40 of Coronavirus, The Whole Story. My name's Vivian Parry, I'm a writer, broadcaster and UCL alumna and host of this award-winning podcast all about the coronavirus and the vital research taking place here at UCL. Now, unlike March 2020, when you may remember the weather was spectacular, the last few weeks of lockdown 2021 style have seen rain, snow, ice, rain, and then a lot more rain. It's been dark, freezing, it's been miserable and unbelievably muddy. Like me, your thoughts may well have been drifting to azure seas and a bucket of sangria. But many countries are tightening their borders to protect them from new virus strains such as the UK variant, and the foreign parts seem more and more like an impossible dream. So in this week's episode, I'm going to be talking to the UCL experts about international travel during the pandemic and what we can expect in the future. Today, I'm joined by Professor Andreas Schaefer, Professor of Energy and Transport at the UCL Energy Institute, Director of Research at the Bartlett School of Environment, Energy and Resources, and Director of the Air Transportation Systems Laboratory. Andreas's team provides consultancy to leading transport industry through UCL Consultants Limited, part of UCL Innovation and Enterprise. He recently concluded a piece of consultancy into the hybrid electric market and is an expert on the need for electric planes in the future. I'm also joined by Kirsty Diaz Watson, a UCL alumna and French graduate who's now managing director at Priestman Good. Priestman Good are a design consultancy that work with clients in the travel industry from trains to planes to spacecraft and everything in between. And last but not least, my third guest this week is my old friend and colleague, Professor Sir Jonathan Montgomery, who is Professor of Healthcare Law in the Faculty of Laws. Alongside his research, which has been fundamental to the field of healthcare law and his teaching, Jonathan has held many public advisory roles and is currently chairing an expert deliberation into vaccine passports for the Ada Lovelace Institute. So today I want to start by establishing what kind of impacts the pandemic has had on global travel other than a very big one. Andreas, first of all, what kind of changes have we seen within the travel industry over the last year? Well, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that uh, the pandemic had the largest sustained disruption on transportation since World War II. And particularly hit was the aviation sector, perhaps not surprisingly, because most of it or much of it is international by definition. And if there are no customers, there are no revenue streams. And as a result of that, the airline industry had to cut back in terms of the workforce, in terms of uh, the aircraft fleet it operates. And these uh, reductions had, of course, propagating effects upstream and down, downstream of the value chain. So upstream towards the manufacturers uh, of aircraft, engines and suppliers, uh, airports, and downstream to the entire travel industry, which includes hotels, restaurants, car hires, uh, and, and so forth. And it's not a question of simply opening it all up, is it? Because it's it would take time to open it up, presumably. Yeah, well, well you know, demand for air transportation uh, very strongly depends on income. And many folks have uh, been disadvantaged by the pandemic and as a result, simply couldn't afford to travel by air anymore before they recover. In addition, as you lined out at the beginning, borders have been closed and, and uh, immigration rules uh, change. 
and also be, people become increasingly nervous about getting infected while they travel. So all of these factors would have to be addressed in order for air transportation to recover. How long do you think these impacts will last from an economic perspective? Well, it, it will critically depend on you know the uh, availability and effectiveness of uh, vaccination programs. And, and uh, related to that, about uh, country policies, when they would uh, open the borders again for travel and for passengers, when they can afford to travel. And, and again, how risk averse they are in terms of potentially getting infected when they travel. We shouldn't just think of the travel industry itself. I mean, you've already mentioned the effects on, for instance, manufacture of planes, but also there's a big impact in countries where tourism is the only industry. We've heard about safari holidays, where that's having an impact not only on the local population, but also on the wildlife. Absolutely. And and many of these countries, they have the unfortunate situation that they are located rather low in the income scale, and they are uh, penalized perhaps most severely from the pandemic. You're absolutely right. Another area which is very relevant to academics is that the Congress trade has shut up shop and everything is online. That's a big sort of slug of of travel, that kind of business travel. Do you expect that to return? It it, it will return. The only question is, is when. We are by far too interconnected in order to... uh, suddenly change our our way of life and our way of work forever so it's it's just a question about when not not whether now we're saying when should we but it's should we do it at all because with many of us shut inside and not traveling commuting for the moment we're thinking well we're seeing how the air is so much cleaner the streets are quieter and we're all beginning to reflect on our lifestyles before the pandemic and how they had such a big impact on the environment. Is this a conversation you see continuing address as we return to normal? And how might that change the airline and travel industries? I suspect that there will be a short-term impact on on demand, uh, also because people may become more conscious. But I can't imagine that air transportation demand would not rebound. So, so, so the current situation of the pandemic certainly makes us aware, or perhaps more aware, about the challenges that exist for greening the industry, if you wish. But the pandemic itself cannot sufficiently incentivize the industry to become greener, because in order to do that, we need disruptive technology. And that technology is extremely expensive. We're talking about tens of billions of dollars of development costs. And without any revenue streams, there's no way the industry can fund such a transition. So what we need is is government intervention in order to enable such a transition. In France, President Macron has funded the survival of the French aviation industry with 15 billion euros. And 10% of that amount, so 1.5 billion euros, is dedicated to developing green aircraft. Uh, also, the UK has a similar program, also significantly more modest. And, and we see these initiatives also in other parts of the world. Thank you. I want to continue this conversation about the future, but come to you, Kirsty, because the travel industry is presumably adapting to this new normal, as in the new normal 
after we start to travel again. How has it changed already and what kind of change do you see happening for the future? I think that we are seeing kind of immediate changes in terms of passenger sensitivity to hygiene and cleanliness, for example. And we're working immediately to look at, for example, retrofitting hand sanitizers on board trains. But I think the base of all of this, how do we get people back to travelling as they did previously? Well, I think probably their habits will have changed forever and we will travel differently perhaps in the future. But it's about airline operators or train operators offering reassurance that passengers are coming into an environment which to a certain degree is is controlled so that we are using new technologies with UV cleaning or different design methods to design perhaps new seats that have less dirt traps to offer reassurance that passengers are entering an environment where they will be essentially safe. So we have developed some concepts in the last year. Uh, We've developed a concept called Pure Skies, which looks specifically at this. So using antimicrobial materials and finishes, looking at really offering personal space, which is kind of more controlled, more hygiene and through digital offering kind of more touch-free features. But do you think, Kirsty, that it has also affected the kind of destinations that we want to travel to? I mean, I I know that all of us, frankly, we'd go five miles away, (laughs) never mind 500 miles away, simply because we want a change of scene. But I wonder whether people are thinking more about places that they don't feel that there will be so many people Or maybe it will be that the wheel seeking people. In terms of destination, I think that, you know, just to pick up on a point that you made previously about people being more aware of the sustainable impact the last year has had on on travel, I think we're definitely seeing, particularly in mainland Europe, a desire to travel more by train. You know, we're seeing the networks of for example night trains expanding in Europe so different uh, European rail operators are signing agreements to expand the network of of how we travel across Europe so I think there's an increased appetite to travel differently and in terms of I suppose caution about traveling to countries where we perceive there might be greater risks I think that in the short term might depend determine people's choice of destination but ultimately and I think this was borne out last summer people have a natural great desire to travel and that will continue but I do think without question environmental awareness is is on the increase and we absolutely embrace that. And presumably also another thing that travellers will want is guaranteed consumer protection because one of the things that we've seen is this dreadful problem of trying to get refunds on tickets and having to cancel at the very last minute because a country has shut its doors or a new variant has appeared. And we're going to be with this problem of new variants for some time to come and they'll pop up all over the place. And it's likely that travel is going to be impacted at short notice. How is that aspect of travel going to be handled? I think we are going to see an increase in vaccine passports, for example, 
where you have the reassurance that you know you have had the vaccine and that you are confident that you will be able to travel when you get to the airport you're not going to be refused passage because you're going to fail a a covid test i was thinking actually more the consumer thing of at the very last minute people have to cancel their holidays because say a new variant has appeared whatever vaccines people have had are not suitable for that country any longer and people have to cancel their holidays. And cancellation has been a huge problem for the travel industry because they've been sitting on uh, money for a long time. But on the other hand, they need that money or else they're going to go bust completely. So it, it's affected the business model of the travel industry very substantially. Yes, I would agree with that. I think there will be perhaps new models and new you know, opportunities in insurance for greater trust. Well, A, that we will be more adaptable to our plans changing at short notice. So maybe we will have to become more accustomed to disappointment and that you will pay more to ensure that you will get a refund. Let me now turn to the vexed question of vaccine passports. And Jonathan, I know that you've been doing some work with the Ada Lovelace Institute on that. What are we talking about here? So let's talk first about international travel rather than some kind of vaccine passports within the UK. Let's first talk about the international travel dimension. What's going to happen there, do you think? So I think this is primarily about confidence. Um, the public health case for vaccine passports is actually pretty weak. The key question is what will get people traveling again? I think that, first of all, you need to feel safe. Now, vaccination is actually crucial to you feeling safe. A passport isn't. What's crucial is that you know that you've been vaccinated because that's going to protect you against getting ill or being seriously ill when you travel. You're going to be worried not so much about your passport as whether or not the vaccination that you have had is going to be appropriate for the place that you're visiting. So if you think of something like malaria tablets, you need to take the right tablets for the place that you're going. So you're going to need some way of finding out whether the vaccination that you've received is going to be useful. So we would be a bit concerned at the moment about travelling to South Africa because we don't know very much yet whether the vaccines that work in the UK are also sufficiently effective uh, in South Africa. So understanding about vaccination is crucial to get us travelling again. The second thing is whether or not we will be at greater risk if we travel than we would be if we were at home. And the worry about vaccine passports here is that they may lull us into a false sense of security. Most of the people who are pushing vaccine passports are doing so thinking that it will be less likely that I get infected by somebody else if all the other passengers on the plane have had a vaccine. So it's not about protecting myself so much as the other people being less likely to infect others. And we don't know whether that's true yet. It may turn out to be true. But I would be worried. It wouldn't give me confidence at the moment that the other people had a vaccine passport. And then the final bit is about the countries who are wanting to receive visitors. So what we're seeing at the moment in terms of enthusiasm for passports and international travel is principally driven by the need of the travel industry to get people traveling and the needs of countries reliant on tourism to encourage people to come in. Now, if I'm Greece and I'm encouraging people to come in, I'll know if they're vaccinated, they're not likely to be ill while they're in Greece and therefore not putting a big strain on the local health services. I won't necessarily know whether they'll 
reduce the risk of the virus coming into the country. So if I was Greece, I'd be quite keen on a vaccine passport to encourage people in. If I was the UK, I'd be pretty worried because if we encourage people to go somewhere else and bring back a virus, then there's a public health problem coming in. And if we look at the, the best known example of vaccine passports, it's the yellow fever system. The yellow fever system is actually a way of stopping countries barring entry to people. So even if we wanted to stop someone coming in to the UK because we were worried they might bring yellow fever, we couldn't do that under international law because the passporting system, the yellow fever vaccination, bars us from refusing entry. So again, on a public health point of view, it would be very strange if countries adopted a vaccine passport system on that model because they'd lose control of their borders exactly at the point where they're trying to make sure that we don't import the virus uh, inadvertently. From a public health point of view, these are deeply problematic. From an economic point of view, the question is, will they or will they not give us more confidence to travel? And the truth is, I guess, that at the moment, we simply don't know enough about vaccine effect you know, how much it reduces transmission, all those kinds of things, you know, the, its response to different variants, so that we're, we're thinking about this actually without all the knowledge that we need. And also, the other thing, of course, that we forget is that a 95% efficacious vaccine means that one in 20 of those vaccinated will, will not have any protective effects because that's how vaccines work. It doesn't work for everyone. And that's difficult in itself, isn't it? Well, it's even more complex than that, Vivian. So the impact will be different on individuals. So when we talk to the immunologists, they can't see the sense of this at all because they say every individual has a different immune response. So we think about it in, in terms of averages, you know, and everyone will be slightly different. But at a population level, of course, that doesn't matter because we all get protection if we can suppress the spread of the virus. At an individual level, it probably matters quite a lot. But we're used to assessing risks. You know, we, we're used to deciding whether to go somewhere uh, where we might be at malaria risk. And vast numbers of people travel without taking the medication that the doctors think that they should do because they've decided that the risk, if they stay in their resort, you know, is sufficiently small that, it, that it's worth running. So if we go back to the questions you were asking earlier about how will our travel change, uh, I guess the first thing really is about how we think about risks. And the worry about vaccine passports is it might create a sort of fetish that we distort our understanding of risk by thinking that the only thing that really matters is have I or have I not got the right app or the right stamp in my passport. And that may be a pretty minor part um, of the, the risks uh, that we're running. Business travel, for me, it's all about efficiency. You know, so I'm now thinking very differently. Do I need to get on the train and travel into London? It needs to be worth the loss of time, the degree of risk I'm taking in the pandemic. The degree of risk in the pandemic will drop, but the time I lose by sitting in a station waiting for a train or an airport waiting for the plane to arrive, that's not going to change. You know, I have learned I can co-author with people I've never met. And uh, I can engage in deliberation events with people in different time zones uh, using internet platforms that I'd never experienced pre-pandemic. So I'm absolutely sure it'll alter our judgments we make in individual cases. But it's hard to see that we won't want to travel once we believe it's safe to do so. And the key to that is not so much passports, but it is vaccination. And the other bit, of course, is the discriminatory aspect. There will be people, particularly in the early stages of vaccination, particularly young people, who just 
simply won't have got far enough down the schedules to have had their vaccines, who will effectively be barred from going to some places. And the typical places that younger people will go are the places that have cheap and cheerful holidays where you go with 20 of your mates. But that kind of thing won't happen. So let's um, do a thought experiment for the the coming summer. It's unlikely that we'll have significant numbers of the 18 to 30 age group who have had two vaccines and waited long enough after their second vaccine to build up immunity. So if a country is looking to attract tourists for the summer 2021, a vaccine passport is not really a plausible route to do that. It's got to think much more about whether it's prepared to take the risk of those people coming in. Uh, I was joking with a friend over emails yesterday. Imagine that France says the only people they're going to let in are people who've had the Pfizer vaccine. So we will have a significant number who get vaccinated in the UK programme who will be able to go all over the world, but not France, because the president of France is not convinced that the uh, Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine is a valid vaccine. South Africa, you might imagine, you know, is thinking we'll only take people who've had the vaccines that work um, for here. So it's going to become very complicated and it's not going to unlock travel for this summer. Next summer, summer 22, hopefully by then, all over the world, lots of people have been vaccinated. And why would you want to differentiate? Because the change in risk will not be enough for you to want to segment the world's population by uh, who is vaccinated and who isn't. So it sort of feels like a temporary fix that isn't going to fix the time window that is most important to us. And what we should probably be doing is focusing much more on what would make travel safer, what would give people confidence to travel. And that's much more like the changes that Kirsty described to the vehicles and the waiting areas, and much more about testing than it is about vaccination, because that will give us a, an opportunity to understand, am I actually sitting next to someone who I know has got the virus uh, at the moment? So I wonder whether the vaccine passports are a bit of a red herring for the problem we're trying to crack. Let me put that back to Andreas and to Kirsty. Andreas, first, what are your thoughts of, on what Jonathan has just said? I couldn't agree more. I mean, he's the expert after all, but it can't be one one approach only. It's a combination of measures and testing uh, seems to me a, a fundamental one in addition to vaccination programs and, and ensuring that fundamentals of, of hygiene and, and, and so forth are maintained. Kirsty? Yes, I, I mean, I absolutely agree. I think it is about, as I said previously, it's offering reassurance. I think it's about demonstrating to passengers that, the, you know, the environments into which they are stepping are controlled. I think it's a kind of a combination between encouraging new behaviours, be that using hand sanitizers, wearing masks, etc. But I think it's also combined with kind of strong public information. So I think, you know, London Underground is actually quite a good example of later last summer. So when they'd been kind of operating, forcing passengers wearing masks, for example, they started to, individual stations started to show statistics of numbers of passengers being penalised for not wearing masks. And these uh, statistics were just kind of put up on posters, almost like handwritten posters in specific stations. And although some people might find that draconian, I actually think that that communication demonstrated to passengers these measures are being enforced. We are taking this seriously. 
and you will be looked after in this environment. So I think it is a combination of, you know, making actual changes that you can make through design. But I think it's also about communication. Jonathan. So there's a lot of behavioural science, isn't there, in, in, in dealing with this. But I think the most important thing uh, about this and the sort of examples that Kirsty just raised is the idea that the solution here is about our collective actions, not about seeing ourselves as a set of individuals and the only thing that matters is our own risk. You know, so one of the worries about vaccine passports is it somehow divides us into people who don't need to worry and people who t- should be worrying, whereas actually the solution here is that as a society, we make changes to the way in which we behave, including how we travel, that are relatively low cost. They're inconveniences to us, but they're big benefits in terms of the support we give to each other in society. So it's maintaining our social distance, good hand hygiene, mask wearing, spreading the times in which we travel. So the density of travellers is is spread as much as we can. And that's why it's no one quick fix to this. At the moment, if I were to seek to go to an entertainment venue, which was asking for people to show they'd been vaccinated before they went in, I would run a mile. What I would take from that is that these are people who have a false sense of security. That They think that if they just ask that question, the pub or the cinema or the football ground will be a safer place. I want to go somewhere where everybody's thinking, How, what am I doing to reduce the risk that I present to others in the expectation that if I do that, they're going to be taking steps to reduce the risk, the risk to me. So I think you know, the confidence building factors are around people taking care you know, and taking calculated risks as opposed to unnecessary or or unthinking risks. So that's why I think that sort of reinforcing to people that there are expectations about how we look after each other. And those expectations will be policed in a small P way. And it's much more significant they're policed by us frowning upon each other than they are by they're policed by agents um, of of the state or or the transport system. But it's that that will make our travelling safer and give us confidence uh, rather than any particular badge that we're given. Eminently sensible as always Jonathan and I wish that politicians had a kind of small Jonathan sized cupboard that they could kind of open and listen to you before they shut it again and made their decisions. Okay so we come to the end of this episode of Coronavirus The Whole Story and in general I give my guests a magic wand. Now, they're not allowed to use the magic wand to simply banish coronavirus because that would be too easy. But in terms of using your wand, what one thing, and this comes with unlimited money, by the way, and unlimited resource, what one thing would you do to not just make the travel industry of tomorrow safe, but to make it resilient? Kirsty, what about you? I'll focus on the future. I think that we should be ensuring that the future of travelling, so from home to destination, wherever that may be, uses the kind of opportunity we've had in the last 12 months to reflect on the sustainable benefits and invest in the opportunities that electric vehicles give us, that the opportunities that kind of new and sustainable materials offer us and yeah that we create a traveling future 
which has more of a conscience perhaps so that of course that we travel for pleasure but that we're more reflective about the need to travel for business for example I think we've seen positives come out of the expansion of virtual conferencing I think that's made the people that participate in conferences in many ways more inclusive because well if you have responsibilities for childcare that might have prohibited your access to those kinds of global platforms previously or made it difficult. I think they have become wider and more representative forums because they are virtual. So I, I realise that I've made my answer not about one thing, but yes, I'm going I'm going to go for a more sustainable future. Okay, Andreas, how about how about you? Is this a moment for sustainability to have a real toehold in the future of our travel? Oh, uh, absolutely certain. Yeah, um, but not not only in travel. I think we need to look at the entire ecosystem and and you know step back and try to understand the challenges we are facing. It, there can be a, another pandemic uh, after this one. In order to be better prepared, the steps we are taking now should be lasting and, and sufficiently grounded. But also, if we look at climate change and our obligation to reduce greenhouse gas emissions drastically by mid-century in order to avoid a terrible, uh, irreversible change, we, we should take this um, pandemic as a impetus to, on a personal and uh, on a collective level to become more thoughtful in terms of the decisions that we take. How about you, Jonathan? What would you do with your magic wand? So uh, in my utopia, people are only going to travel because it's really worth it. They're going to a fantastic holiday destination or it's a work trip that's really going to add value. And my magic wand would be waved in order to make sure that everybody has access to the vaccinations and testing so that they have confidence to travel when they want or need to without worrying about the health questions which are preoccupying us during the COVID pandemic. Actually, I must admit, if I had a magic wand, it would give me the crystal ball that I could say, is this trip going to be worthwhile? And it would instantly tell me yes or no. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a good thing? Anyway, thank you all. It's been a fantastic talking to you. You've been listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. This episode was presented by myself, Vivian Parry, produced by UCL with support from the UCL Health of the Public and UCL Grand Challenges and edited by the splendid Keris Bradley. I was joined today by Professor Andreas Schaefer, Kirsty Diaz-Watson and Professor Sir Jonathan Montgomery. If you'd like to hear more of these podcasts from UCL Minds, of course you would. Subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities open to everyone. Hope to be with you again soon. Bye for now.